We're going to jump back into Revelation this morning, and it's a challenging book, so I think we better pray. Father, um, we pray that you would embody us with your spirit this morning, and that he would do what he does, which is gives us understanding into your scriptures, and uses that to, to convict us, and mold us, and shape us. We pray that that would happen this morning. That as we wrestle through this, this, this scripture that is so foreign to us, that you would give us insight. And, and not just uh, insight that touches our heads, Lord, but insight that touches our wills, our emotions, the, the deepest parts of us. So that we can uh, follow the Lamb better. That's what we want to happen this morning. Um, we pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Um, my wife owns her own business. She makes artificial eyes, noses, ears. And my daughter, Chelsea, uh, has getting trained to do that and thus works for my wife. The other day I was debriefing with Barb and I asked her how her day went. And uh, uh, one of the things she told me is that Chelsea was in a really, really good mood. And it's not that she's usually not in a good mood, but today she was exceptional and I said, well, what happened? And Barb kind of laughed. She said, well, she decided not to listen to the news as she drove to work. And that made the difference in her day. I don't know if that happens to you, but sometimes the news can be incredibly discouraging. I mean, you turn it on, and it's war, and it's murder, and it's terrorist attack, and it's political turmoil, and, and, and it's, just, it's just devastating on you. It does discourage you, and it does at times put you in a bad mood. I think it also raises a profound question for us, though. Um, you see, we are people who believe in the gospel. And the gospel is really a word that means victory. It's news of a great victory. And the gospel means that on the cross, Jesus achieved a victory over Satan, sin, death, and all evil. But if that's true, if all those have been defeated on the cross, then the question comes, why is the world such a mess? All of it's been defeated. Why, why is the world the way it is? We're going to get some insight on that this morning. We're going to look at Revelations chapter 12, 13, and 14. It's a lot of information. You're going to feel like you're getting sprayed with a fire hose this morning. I understand that. But I want you to hang with me. Uh, um, you, small groups, this is a great opportunity to take some of the stuff that we talk about and, and discuss it in your small groups because it's so much and you need to wrestle with it. I may say some things this morning that are different than what you've heard in the past or are new for you. That's, that's okay. Uh, um, but, but I think hopefully you'll have, a, 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 in my opinion, a better way to read the book of Revelation as we, we talk this morning. You'll understand what's going on at least in these three chapters. So what we're going to do is, is I've broken it down almost into scenes, little uh, smaller portions of scripture. So we're going to talk through those and at times jump out of them to make some application. We're going to work all the way to the end where I'll kind of give you the main point of what these chapters are teaching. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which I think is going to be a good response to what John is trying to tell us in these three chapters. So let's start. We're going to do chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. This is really a passage that is about Christmas. It's not the normal place you go for Christmas, but this is what is happening. A great sign appeared in heaven. 
A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Who's the woman? Well, she's described as having these, the moon under her feet and the crown of twelve stars. That all echoes a dream that Joseph had back in Genesis chapter 37. And it's just a way of saying that this, this woman is the messianic community. This is the faithful people of God through which the Messiah is going to come. It goes all the way back to Eve, who has a son who crushes the serpent. It comes in culmination with Mary. But this, this is the messianic community. Uh, and it, the baby's going to come, and she's ready to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the heaven. Enormous red dragon. Red is a color that represents evil and murder and death. So there's this dragon, and we're later told that the dragon is Satan, and Satan is a word that simply means adversary. This is God's arch enemy, the dragon. He has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. All those are symbols of immense power, okay? He, he's God's enemy, and notice what happens. Verse 4, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. It's just a way of showing us how powerful the dragon is. He, he, just with his tail, he can take a third of the stars out of the... That's pretty powerful. But notice, he can only take a third. He doesn't take all of them. In other words, he has immense power, you know, heads, crowns, tail, but his power is limited. There's limits on his power. Well, anyway, here's the picture. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so he might devour the child the moment he was born. So here it is. This woman's going to give birth. She's pregnant. The dragon's there. He's huge. He's ready. He's going to eat the child. And what happens? She gave birth to a son, a male child. And notice it says, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. This goes back to Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 2, verse 9. A messianic psalm, and that phrase is a way of describing the Messiah. So this child that the woman's going to have is Christ. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. Now, this is interesting. The whole life is, of Christ is skipped, right? And immediately it jumps to his ascension. But even though the dragon was trying to destroy the child and eat the child, he's taken away. The dragon can't overcome the child. So the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of 1,260 days. The wilderness in Scripture is not just a place of escape. It's a place of protection. It's a place where you find refuge, a place where you find intimacy and fellowship with God. And the notion here is that for this 1,260 days, God is going to protect this woman. And you'll see this woman kind of, it's the people of God, but now more so the church. Uh, some people think the, the flea is the church in, in 67 running from uh, the Jewish war uh, to Pella. But I think it's just the church of God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now we're going to see this number, 1,260, uh, again and again and again and again in the book of Revelation. Sometimes it's 42 months. Sometimes it's a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. Uh, sometimes it's this way. It's a symbol. It's not literal. It's not literally 1,260 days. It, it's really a symbol that is going back to 167 B.C., 
when Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian despot, attacked the Jews for a period of three years. And it's a way of symbolizing a moment in time when evil is given its free reign. Okay? And it's not telling you exactly how long, this is symbolic, how long that period of time is. I think that the 1260 days is from the time of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, that period of time, until his second coming. This period of time, the church age, the age in which we live, some people call it the tribulation. I think we live in the midst of it. Uh, it's this period of time where evil is given free reign. And you'll see why I, th- I lean that way as we explore this, but you'll see the number again and again. Now, I want to step out here and talk a few moments about how to interpret the book of Revelation. And I want to do it here because this is one of those passages where the commentators basically agree. Everybody agrees that this woman is the Messianic community uh, with echoes of Mary and Eve. Uh, Everybody agrees that the baby is Christ. Everybody agrees that the dragon is Satan, okay? So everybody's on the same page on this passage. So I think we can step out of it and then thus make some observations about how then we should interpret uh, the book of Revelation because we know what the symbols are in terms of their reference in this passage, okay? So let me make uh, three notes on interpretation. The first has to do with chronology. The sequence of events in the book of Revelation are not a sequence through history. They're not chronological through history. Obviously, the birth of Jesus doesn't come before the seven seals and the seven trumpets, right? That would make no sense. The sequence of events that we get in the book of Revelation are the sequence of what John sees in the vision. He sees this in the vision, then he sees this in the vision, and then he sees this in the vision. But that sequence is not necessarily the sequence in history. God is outside of time. And it's obvious in this passage that this is out of sequence. I think what is going on is what we call recapitulation. And you see this again and again in the book of Revelation. It's, it's like a circle that comes back on itself again and again. You, you can see this in what we've read. Uh, you have the, the seals, right? The sixth seal, if you read it carefully, you discover, oh, this is the second coming of Christ, this ups, the setting up of the new heavens, new earth, and the judgment at the sixth seal. But then you read about the trumpets, because the trumpets come out of the seventh seal, and you get to the seventh trumpet, and guess what? That's the second coming of Christ again, and the judgment of the dead, and the new heavens and the new earth. And you go, wait, wait a second, I read it. Oh, it's recapitulating. It's telling me the same thing from a different perspective. It's like you have this jewel, this diamond, and you look at it from one angle, and you see all its facets, how the light comes through, and you notice and all the beauty of it. But you want to get a better understanding of it. So you turn the diamond, and now you're looking at it from another perspective, another angle, and you see different things. And that's what's going on here. It's recapitulating back. In fact, we're going to see this in the next text when we read about the war in heaven and Michael. It's actually recapitulating or retelling the the birth of Christ and what gives us more information about what's going on there. You'll see this. So this is a technique that John is using again and again as we're given the vision. I like the quote by N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is just a marvelous New Testament scholar, one of the best around today. And in his 
commentary on Revelation, he writes this. Is, he says, we are not dealing in Revelation with a single sequence of events in which the seals come first and then the trumpets and then all the material in chapters 12 through 14 culminating in the bowls of wrath and so on. What we are dealing with is several different angles of vision on the one single great reality that through the awful turmoil and trouble of the world, God is establishing through Jesus a people who, following the Lamb, are to bear witness to God's kingdom through their own suffering, through which the world will be brought to repentance and faith so that ultimately God will be king over all. So you read it like this. Again and again, and you gain different perspective on this, this 1260 days. Now the end of the book of Revelation is about the future, but it's again giving us a different per perspective on what we're living through. Which gets us to the third point. Uh, or the second point, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Symbolism. I think one of the greatest struggles we have in the book of Revelation is we don't understand the kind of literature it is, the genre. It's apocalyptic literature. See, one of the things you and I do naturally is we know how to read different types of literature. We automatically shift. We read comics different than we read poetry, and we read poetry different than we read the news, and we read the news different than we do a novel, and we read a novel different than we do nonfiction, scientific literature. And we just naturally, because we understand those different genres, shift our reading, you know. Uh, that's the natural thing. But when we get to apocalyptic literature, we don't, we don't have that in our culture. So we don't know what to do with it, or how to read it, or how it should be read. So we tend to read it in a more literal way than it was designed. Uh, we take the 1260 days as literal 1260 days. We, we, we take the beast as a literal beast. We take, you know, we try to find literal representations of what we're reading in the book. But I think that misses the point. In fact, in verse 1 and 2 of the book, if we can go there just for a second, it says this, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants that must take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. There's a Greek word, smeon, for he made it known. And it's a, it's a different word than the typical word you use to say make it known, which is gnosko. Um, this word literally means to make known by symbol. And what he's doing, he's telling John this and the churches that this is a different kind of literature. You have to read this as symbolic. So, so everything you're going to come across isn't literal but symbolic. And in apocryphal literature, the symbols tend to be cataclysmic, dramatic, and exaggerated. You see that in this passage, right? I mean, there's this dragon, he's huge, he's red, and he's going to eat the child, and this woman is having a baby, and he's taking up to, and you go, man, what is going on earth? What's happening? Well, in a small part of Judea, there's a baby that was born, <laughs> and nobody took note. There was a few rumors of angels. Some shepherds showed up. Some guys from the east, and Herod killed a bunch of babies. You go, what? That's not that dramatic. I mean, it, it almost seemed mundane. I, I think we sometimes take the, the, the symbols in Revelation and make more of them than we ought. We see the sky being pulled back and hailstones from heaven and things, fire, and we think nuclear war. And it's really just evil running rampant. 
we see locusts coming out of the abyss. And we think, oh, those are attack helicopters. No, it's just demons having their way, which we don't even hardly see because we're blind to it. That's the nature of apocalyptic literature. It gets exaggerated and dramatic and cataclysmic. When what's really going on from our perspective seems kind of normal. In fact, let me give you an assignment, okay? I want you to go this week and read Psalm 18. But I want you to read it without reading the description that's at the beginning of the psalm that tells us what is going on in the psalm, okay? Skip that. Just read the psalm. And one of the things you'll see that in this psalm, the skies open up. And God comes to earth, he's, bringing, he's breathing smoke out of his nose and fire out of his mouth, and there's earthquake and cataclysmic things, and he's shooting arrows, and he's defeating the enemies of God. And you think, man, this is the second coming. This is what this is about, right? Then go back and read the description of what is this psalm is describing. It's a psalm of David that he wrote while he was in the desert running from Saul. And then go to 1 Samuel, chapter 16 through the end of the, cha- the, the book, verse 30, chapter 31. And read about what it was like when David was running from Saul in the desert. And you're not, you're not going to see the skies open up. And you're not going to see smoke and fire. And you're not going to see arrows coming down from heaven or God coming out of the sky. You're just going to see David running around the desert. And in very subtle ways being rescued by God and escaping Saul. But when David takes those experiences and puts them into apocalyptic writing, it's cataclysmic. It's exaggerated. It's cosmic. Why? Because that's the nature of the literature. In fact, I think there's a good rule to follow when you're wrestling with this kind of literature. And that is to take things symbolically unless you need to take them literally. That is the nature of apocalyptic literature. That means that numbers, colors, personages, beasts, women, dragons, and events are all symbolic. And more often than not, far more mundane and normal than we might assume. Okay, third note on interpretation, pastoral intention. When John writes the book of Revelation because he's had this vision, he's writing it to these seven churches and his expectation is that it is going to minister to and edify them. And what that means is that what he writes in this book has to be understandable and relevant to their experience. Notice what he says in in chapter 1 verse 3. He says, uh, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now think for a moment. Some people go to the book of Revelation and assume that at chapter 4, verse 1, the church is raptured and is taken away. And that everything that happens from 4 and 5 to the end of the book happens in the future. If that is true, then that all becomes totally irrelevant to the seven churches that John is writing to. And my question is, boy, if that's all future and it's just a schematic of what's going to happen, how in the heck is that going to be a blessing to those in John's day who are reading it out loud? It's not. It's irrelevant to them. But if John is describing the church age 
and recapitulating and showing us how evil works against God's people again and again and again, suddenly it becomes very relevant to those reading it, the original audience of John. And we're going to see that today, especially in chapter 13 when he describes the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. Those people in John's day knew exactly who that beast was. And they were experiencing the realities of those beasts in their lives at that moment in time. So it has to mean something to them. And if that's true, it changes the way that you read the book. You know, when Larry and I started studying this book, we didn't come from a particular perspective. And there's four we've talked about then, the historians, Peterists, Futurists, and, and Idealists. And we're a bit eclectic. But we just said, look, we're going to read this book and try to identify the nature of the literature and read it accordingly. And, and you're getting where we ended up. Uh, we think it's talking about the church age and how Satan works against his people and how we are to be faithful witnesses. And then at, that, at the end of the book, you do get what is future in the second coming of Christ and the setting up of the new world, new heavens, the renewal of all things. Um, by the way, this is not a weird way to, to read the book. Throughout church history, uh, people have read the book the way we're presenting the book. Uh, um, it, it's only in the last couple hundred years that some of these other, the futurist position has become. But we swim in that water that it's all future. If you read Left Behind or go see a movie, it's going to be all this future stuff. But I think it really mishandles the literature and makes the book almost irrelevant and indecipherable. I don't think you need to do that. So let's go back and figure out what it's saying then. Going to go back to, to verse 7. So the baby's been born, taken to heaven, the woman's escaped. But then we get uh, it replayed again. It actually was uh, a war in heaven. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael, who we read about in Daniel, an archangel, kind of one of the highest angels, and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Evidently, Satan had a place in heaven, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled, in fact, bounced to the earth and his angels with him. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God laid down, uh, our God day and night has been hurled down. Notice this next verse. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. When did this war take place? Well, back when the child was taken to heaven, that's when this moment of war took place. It's a recapitulation, we're telling the story again. And what we're finding out is that when Jesus dies on the cross, he didn't die on the cross just for the forgiveness of sin. He did that, but it was this cosmic conflict centering on the cross when Jesus on the cross by his death defeats Satan, defeats evil, defeats all sin. That's what's taking place. The blood of the Lamb who is slain gives the angelic host the victory. And thus Satan is thrown down. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you and he is filled with fury because he knows that the time is short. How's the time short? He knows that God's going to protect the woman 1,260 days. That's all he has. This period of time where evil is going to be given free reign. 
and it ticks him off. But he's lost the war. It's kind of like <laughs> uh, it's a chess game. God is the chess master and the Satan is a novice chess player. They start the game and within 10 moves, it's pretty obvious that the game is over and, and the novice has been defeated by the master. But the, the, the novice is ticked, so he keeps playing. And he's trying to wreak as much havoc as he can until the ultimate doom comes. That's what's going on. Satan's defeated, but he's in a rage. So next, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Now that's the 747 coming in. I'm joking. Symbol or literal? It's a, <laughs> it's a symbol, right? The woman given birth to male child, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. It's going back to Exodus 19, where God says he took Israel out of Egypt on the wings of an eagle. It's just a metaphor. So that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for what? A time, times, and half a time, that period of 1260 days out of the serpent's reach. So God is going to protect his people in the midst of this turmoil. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away. Now is this a literal flood? Or is it symbolic? It's, sim <laughs> it's symbolic, right? Uh, uh, floods in the scripture picture persecution and the reign of evil. Satan is raging against God's people. But notice what happens. But the earth helped the woman by opening the mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon has spewed out of. Literal or symbolic? Symbolic. Right. He's just saying God's going to take care of his people. Now it echoes what happened back in Numbers chapter 16 when the men of Korah who were committing idolatry, the earth literally opens up and swallows them. So this is an echo of that event, but it's just making the point that God's going to protect his people uh, from the dragon. Then the dragon was enraged at the women and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring and the rest of the church, um, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Now some people think that this flight into the wilderness was the church uh, escaping the Jewish war to Pella in around 67. Others just think it's just a way of configuring the church. And now the people of God are the church, those who keep his command and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So 18. Um, no, no, hold on. Before we jump to the next section, because it's going to get into the beast, I want to jump out of this and, and give you a couple uh, of applications that I think are really important. What do we learn from this? Number one. We learn that we live in the midst of a cosmic war. It would be, I think, profound to have God peel back the barrier between this world and the supernatural world and let us see in. And if we saw that, it would absolutely amaze us. Because we live in the midst of this conflict. There is supernatural things going on. God is at work uh, trying to further his kingdom and Satan and 
God's adversaries in the supernatural realm are working against it. Most of that we ignore. Most of it we don't see because we simply tend to limit our existence to the natural world. But there's cosmic things going on as God advances his kingdom. And those cosmic things play out not only in history and in the church, but in our own lives. But we probably need to be far more aware of them. Second thing we learn is that the enemy is defeated, but he still rages against the saints. I mean, the devil is angry, and he's angry at the child, at the Christ. So he's going to attack that which was most important to Christ or the child, the mother and her offspring. So God is working against the church. And if he's doing that, then what you can expect is that there are going to be casualties. There will be people who give up on their faith, who apostatize. There will be ministries that fail. There will be churches that close. There will be uh, churches that are persecuted. There will be martyrs. And beyond that, there will be a more personal level. There will be relationships that are fractured and marriages that break and people who die and sickness that come. And at times there's a supernatural dimension to those things because you and I are living in the midst of this cosmic conflict. And in the midst of that conflict, there will be casualties. Now, now God will always keep us secure, ultimately. I mean, it, we, but he won't always keep us safe. So we may die. And as Larry said, if we die, it's an upgrade. We got to go to be with him. So we're secure, but we're not always safe because we're, we're in the war. But remember this, the dragon's time is short. And that's why he's so ticked. He knows he only has this 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, time, times, and half a time. But in that time, he's going to wreak havoc against God's church here on earth and God's people. Now the question comes, how does he do this? Uh, lots of ways, but, but uh, one of the keys way, ways is he uses beasts. And we're going to see the dragon and two beasts, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. And it's kind of like the unholy trinity because it's a parody of God. So first he, he sets up what is called the beast of the sea. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Is the sea literal or symbolic? Symbolic. Thank you. You're getting it. Um, the sea is just humanity, unredeemed humanity. The beast comes from there. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. What's that an image of? Just like it was for the dragon, there are images of power. And he's saying this, this beast has incredible power, just like the dragon had power. Because he's empowered by the dragon. But on this case, and each had a blasphemous name. So, so he's going to parody God. Blaspheme God. The beast I saw resembled a leopard. So we don't know what the beast is, but we're going to get a hint here, right? The beast I saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Now, this part is a description or at least echoes the vision that Daniel had back in Daniel chapter 7. And if you go back there, you'll find that Daniel had this, this dream, and this dream was of four beasts. And each of the beasts represented a kingdom that was working against God's kingdom. So these are the oppositional forces to God. And I think it's just his way of saying that this beast is political power. This is a corrupt system. This is the state. And in fact, if John's readers read this, I think they immediately knew who the beast was. It was Rome. 
That was who, who was working against them, um, the, the government against them. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne great authority. And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. What's that all about? A couple possibilities. Some people think that's a reference to one of the emperors of Rome named Caligula because during his reign he got really sick and they thought he was going to die, but he got well and came back to the throne and ruled some more. Most people think it's a reference to Nero and it's picking up a rumor that was taking place. Uh, in, in about 67, 68, Nero was declared an enemy of the people. He was staying at his villa outside Rome and he heard about it and they called him back to Rome and they were going to punish him as an enemy of the people. So Nero decided to commit suicide. He took a dagger and, and put it, in, with the help of a servant, put it into his throat and killed himself. Okay. There was a public funeral for Nero, but there began to be this rumor that Nero really hadn't died, that he was just hiding out, that he was going to come back and reestablish uh, you know, his, his empire, his, his rule. And in fact, historically, a couple of people come back and try to claim that they're, they're Nero, kind of like he was resurrected. Um, I think the best explanation is that this is really talking about the empire itself. After Nero dies, the Roman Empire goes into a time of chaos. There's three emperors who come, and it looks like the Roman Empire is collapsing in on itself. But then Vespasian comes to be the emperor, and he reestablishes control. And it's almost like the empire is resurrected. And it's interesting, later on, it says that the, the head was wounded, but the beast survived. And I think that's talking about the beast, which is Rome, made it through. Anyway, um, the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. And people worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast. Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Now, the dragon and the beast want a number of things to happen. They want to wage war on the people of God and destroy them. They want to blaspheme God. But most of all, they want the people of God to give allegiance to the dragon and the beast. They, and, and historically what is happening this time is it's the emergence of emperor worship. It begins with Caligula. They began to refer to him as the son of God and God. And he didn't do anything to stop. And in fact, by the end of his rule, wanted people to worship him. And then you see it really magnified with Nero. He wanted to be considered a God and to have people worship him as God. And then with Domitian, it's so strong that if you don't worship the emperor, if you don't burn incense and declare your allegiance to the emperor, it's a capital crime. This is political power that's been corrupted, that is putting on pressure on the people of God to worship the beast. Now, if you're in John's day and you understand that the beast is Rome, you know this is exactly what's going on. And this is echoing what we read about in the seven churches, right? Because some in the seven churches are, are experiencing persecution. In fact, some of them have been martyred. The, 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 the cult of the emperor is putting pressure on them to worship the beast. And they're refusing. And as they refuse, they suffer. They get it. But even here, as we talk about corrupt political system, this is just an image. This is a reoccurring theme that happens to God's church again and again in history. Corrupt political power will work against the people of God. It's the beast of the sea. Then, verse 5. 
The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercised authority for 42 months. Again, that period of time, it opened its mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in it. Remember back in the seven churches, they set up an idol in the temple. In one of the churches, it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and conquer them. That's what the beast wants to do is destroy God, God's people, the church. And it was given authority over every tribe, language, people, nation. Again, parroting what God is doing in this international community that he's going to bring about at the end of time. And all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So there's this tension between the people of God and those who worship the beast. And then notice this. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they'd be killed. This is just telling uh, the people of God, look, some of you are going to die. You're going to be martyred for your faith. If you're, you know, determined for captivity, it's going to happen. If it's a sword, it's a sword. And then he says, this calls for patience, endurance, and faithfulness on the part of God's people. You are going to suffer because of the corruption, the political system that works against God's people. Verse 11. We're introduced to the beast of this, the sea, uh, the earth. I saw a second beast. No, coming out of the earth. Is that a symbol or is it literal? Don't come out of the earth. It's a symbol, right? But this, this beast is interesting. It had two horns like a lamb. Who is the lamb? Jesus, right? So this is parodying Jesus. It's a parody. Uh, um, it's an imitation. But it spoke like a dragon, and it exercised all authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. This is the imperial cult. So you had the emperor who wanted to be worshipped who was in Rome. But then you had all these local cities, and in the local cities you had a priesthood that kind of ran the imperial cult or the imperial temples and they would set temples up in the city because if you had a temple that worshipped the emperor, that was kind of a feather in your cap. And then the priesthood of that temple would put pressure on the local population to worship the beast. So this is deceitful religious systems that he's talking about. And, and the people in John's day knew exactly what this was like because they experienced the pressure on them was to cave and worship the beast. And it gets interesting. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven uh, to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth and ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So they, they put statues of the emperor in verse 15. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak, cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. There's historical evidence that they would set up these statues in the temples and then through trickery, pulleys and all kinds of different things, they would make the statues move. And they'd make fire come out of the statue's mouth and, and smoke out of its nose. And then they'd use ventriloquism for the, the, the statues to speak. And people were deceived and thought, oh my gosh, this thing's alive, this thing's Real, we got to worship it. So it's just deceitful religion. Um, it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hands or their foreheads so that they could buy or sell unless they had the mark, uh, could not buy and sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. 
Now, in the vision, John sees the mark of the beast, and it's actually on people's heads. But remember, it's a symbol, and it's a parody. It's a parody of the seal that God has put on his people, on the church, right? They have the name of him on their forehead. Well, are we part of the church? Look at your neighbor. Do they have Jesus on their forehead? No, why? Because the seal, that's a symbol. It's a symbol for what is true in their heart. Are you committed? Is your allegiance to, to the Lamb? If so, you're sealed. Here it's a mark. The mark is on the forehead because that's the place of your mental commitment on the hand because that's how you live it out. It's not that you actually get the mark on your forehead or a mark on, on your hand. It's an issue of your heart. Have you proclaimed allegiance to the beast? And notice what he says. He says, look, if you don't have the mark of the beast, you cannot buy or sell. Well, the people in John's day, when they read this, they knew what that was like because they lived in these cities where the imperial priesthood was trying to put pressure on them to worship as part of the cult. And to do business, you had to join a guild. And to be part of the guild, you had to participate in the idolatry and the worship. And if you didn't join in the guild, you could not enter into commerce. You could not buy or sell. So they're saying, yeah, I don't have the mark of the beast because I'm not going to go worship at their temple. I'm not going to give in and get it. I'm not going to burn incense to the emperor. But because of that, they can't buy or sell. And in chapter 2, we're told about the church that is poor. This is probably why they're poor. You see, this has meaning to the people reading that day because they understood very, quite literally who the beast, it was politically Rome and, and it was the cult system that they faced every day. They got it. Then this most famous verse in this chapter, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Okay, this is symbolic apocalyptic literature. They used a thing called gematria, where they would take the letters of a person's name, turn them into numbers, and represent that person through that number. Now, some people think this is literally a, a man. Some think it's humanity. But here's some of the options. Some people think it's a reference to, to Caligula. It's a way you can take his name and make it 6-6. Most people today, if you read the commentators, think that it was Nero Caesar, okay, um, you can take his name, but here's what you have to do to his name. It's a Latin name. You have to put it into Greek. Then from Greek, you have to put it into Hebrew, transliterate it into Hebrew, and then give uh, numbers to all the Hebrew letters, and you have to misspell Caesar. But if you do that, you get 666. <laughs> now, there is one text that has 616, which is also a way... Uh, name of Caesar can be said, so some people give credence to that. Um, nobody really knows. Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, they think, uh, he ha writes a commentary, and when he gets to this number of 666, he's, he gives some options, but he basically says, I don't know. He was writing in the second century. In other words, what this number meant disappeared really quickly. My best guess is that 666 means completely incomplete, that the number isn't of a literal person, but here a man means humanity. And 666 is the number of humanity. Six is one less than seven. Seven is the number of perfection, the number of God. Six is what falls short of that. 
you have three sixes. Three is also a number of completeness. So this is completely incomplete, completely short. The, you know, if you worship the beast, you're going to fall completely short of what God has designed. And that's the point, right? That's why you want to know what the number of the beast is, is so that you don't get tricked by the deceitful religious system into worshiping the beast. Okay. The bottom line is, we don't know. Question, how does all this apply to us? I mean, if the beast is a corrupt political system, that's the beast of the sea, and the beast of the earth is deceitful religious systems, how does it apply to us? I think it applies significantly. In fact, I want to be really careful of my wording about this, so I wrote it out, but I want to share with you. I think that if you understand the beast of the sea as corrupt political power and the beast of the earth as a reference to deceitful religious system, then what we need to be careful of is when in either one of those, our politics or our religion becomes beastly. So first, be careful of political power when it comes beastly. Let me share with you some ways I think political power becomes beastly. And by the way, this is not a matter of party affiliation, of red, blue, Democrat, Republican. This transcends all that stuff. But I think political power becomes beastly when it becomes our ultimate source of safety and security and it pretends to be our savior and we allow it to play God in our lives. I think political power becomes beastly when it's uses its power against God's kingdom or God's people and when it persecutes the church. I think political power becomes beastly when it violates God's justice and God's values and oppresses the poor and the marginalized. I think political power becomes beastly when it concerns itself only with its self-preservation and its self-gratification and forgets the larger common good or the common good of the world. And here's the point. Our allegiance to the kingdom must always trump our allegiance to the state or to a party. We are citizens of heaven first. That means we should submit to the governing authorities until we should not. And we should not whenever it asks us to violate our allegiance to the king and the kingdom. See, I happen to believe that the primary role of the church when it comes to politics is to be prophetic. That means to not align ourselves with any political power or party, but to always be able to step outside and be able to speak the truth to power. I think that's what the church is called to do. I like what Daryl Johnson writes about this. He says, political powers do not set out to be bestial. They set out to exercise control, to use power, and in the process, they turn bestial. No one can be God but God. And when the state seeks to be God, it does not become divine. It becomes demonic. And it can happen. To be careful of religious systems when they become beastly. Religion becomes beastly when it becomes a tool of political power. 
when we cannot stand apart from our country or our party and say, hey, this is wrong. Religious systems become beastly when they act simply to serve themselves rather than others and the kingdom. And when, we become focused, when they become focused on us, what we want, what we like, what makes us comfortable, we're playing the role of the beast. Religion becomes beastly when it ceases to speak the truth to its culture and its world because the price becomes too high and so it becomes silent. And that has happened. It happened in Germany when the church decided to be silent in the face of Nazism and did not speak up. And it happened in America when the church decided to be silent in the face of civil rights. It happens, folks. We're silent when we should speak. And when we're silent when we shouldn't be, we play the role of the beast. Religion becomes beastly when it leads people away from the values of the kingdom and puts on those false values the imprint of the sacred. Sacred. That's the lie of the prosperity gospel. It says, you know, that value in our culture that says you're first and you can live just as a consumer and have everything rotate around you. And by the way, that, that's God's blessing on your life. That's what he wants for you. That's prosperity. That's, that's the beast. That's the beast. It's deceptive and it's not true. Religion becomes beastly when it puts its trust in power and money rather than the living God who calls us away from safety into lives of risk. We live in a culture where beyond everything else what we want is to be safe. And for the sake of our safety, we're tempted to mistrust those who God cares about or mistreat those who God cares about. Lastly, religion becomes beastly when it will no longer stand up for the oppressed, for the poor, for the widow, for the stranger, the immigrant, but simply seeks to protect itself. You see, John's attack here is an attack against civil religion. It really is. So, how do you respond? We live in a world where the war is won, but the dragon is still on the loose, attacking God's people. John finally says, let me give you some hope. And the way he gives them hope is he jumps to the end of time again. All right? And we're just going to see this at a high level. The first thing he does is, is he shows them the end of the story. He, he gives them this vision of the Lamb which is Christ standing on Mount Zion. And with them are the 144,000, which is the church. And they're basically worshiping the Lamb, singing this new song because of his victory. And John is saying, remember the end of the story. The day is going to come when the devil is put away and you are with Jesus and worshiping him. That's where this is headed. And then he gives them another image of three angels in verse 6. Uh, the first angel... Uh, is one who's going around proclaiming the gospel. And it's a gospel of judgment. And he's saying, look, uh, the angel's reminding people of where they're going to end up. And then the second angel is proclaiming the fall of Babylon. And Babylon is just a symbol for fallen humanity and Rome. And he's saying, look, in the end, all those forces that are working against God are going to fail. They're going to fall. And then there's a third angel. And this angel is an angel that reminds people 
that, that if you worship the beast, there are hor horrific consequences because you will experience God's fury. In, in other words, he's just laying out why they should be faithful. Because if you're not faithful, you will face God's judgment. And then at the end of chapter 14, he takes them to uh, this harvest. And there's a harvest of grain and a gathering of grapes. Um, he says, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. This is Jesus with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. The other angel came out of the temple and called into a loud voice, and sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come. I think this is Jesus coming and reaping his church, the children of God, back to himself at the end of time. Okay. But then there's not only a harvest of grain, but there's a gathering of grapes. And I think the gathering of grapes are, are a gathering of the unbelievers because they are putting to a vat, and the vat is a wine press, and they experience the wine press of God's wrath. It's his judgment. You, you see what John is doing? He's saying, look, Satan has lost the war, but he's still on the loose. But remember the end of the story. In fact, let me put it this way. This is the point. Even though the dragon has lost the cosmic war, he still rages against God's people through political power and religious deception. But we must stay faithful because we know the end of the story. We do. During World War II, there was a guy named McDonald had a Scottish friend. They were both paratroopers. They paratrooped behind enemy lines in Germany. Both got caught and they ended up in a concentration camp. McDonald was put, there was two sides to the concentration camp, a, a British side and an American side. McDonald was put with the Americans and his Scottish friend was put with uh, the British. There was a fence between the two and they wouldn't let the two camps fraternize. But for some reason they'd let these two, both of them were pastors, they'd let these two pastors talk through the fence. Uh, the Germans would listen in, but they discovered that uh, the Germans only understood German and French and didn't understand Gaelic, and both of these guys spoke Gaelic, so they could share information back and forth. The American side actually had got a hold of a shortwave radio, and they were able to get news about what was going on in the war, and MacDonald would take that news and share it with his friend, and then he'd take it back to the British side. One day, they found out that the German high command had surrendered and that the war was over. But the guards of the camp, all the communication in Germany had broken down. They didn't know that the war was over. Uh, um, they, they didn't know that Germany had surrendered. MacDonald went to the fence and he told his friend that, that they had surrendered, the war was over. And he waited there because his friend went back to the British barracks and he knew what was going to happen. They were going to explode in rejoicing and song. I mean, they just went crazy. Guards had no clue what was going on. But it seems after that moment, even though they were still in prison, everything changed. I mean, they didn't complain about the lice. They didn't complain about the lack of food. They'd walk around and they'd wave at the guard dogs. And they'd say hi to the guards. <laughs> I mean, everything shifted. This went on for three days. On the fourth day, the camps woke up and they discovered that all the guards had left and gone into the forest. And that uh, the gates, although closed, had been unlocked. And now everybody was free. McDonald says this. He says, our freedom really didn't come on the fourth day when the gates were able to be opened. Our freedom came when we found out that we had won the war. 
Folks, we know we've won the war. And that makes all the difference. We know the end of the story. We're going to end our service with the Lord's Supper this morning. I think part of what goes on in the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of our allegiance. It's a way of saying, yeah, what Jesus did on the cross, he did for me. Because it, it, it symbolically represents the lamb being slain on the cross, right? His body and his blood. That's the gospel. We, we believe in that and give our allegiance to the king. And we come into relationship with him and he becomes our king and savior. So I want to give you a moment of time this morning to, to reflect uh, and say, you know, where is my allegiance? And when you've done that and wrestled with your heart a bit, I want you to get up and come to a station and realize that as you take the bread and you dip it into the cup, that's what you're doing. You're proclaiming to yourself and to the world and to God that your allegiance is to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Prepare your hearts.